In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Today we celebrate liturgically a feast that brings together historic strands of some complexity, which has come to be known as Candlemas. The several roots go right back to Moses and Abraham on the one hand, and to Christ and his exemplary mother, Mary, on the other. While it is the later accretion of ceremonies of light that bring us to the actual procession and candles. But let's begin with the Gospel and the words of St. Luke we've just heard. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Two words there illuminate a key distinction which the passage as a whole elides, namely purification on the one hand and presentation on the other. For St. Luke here seems to narrate as happening at the same time two religious rites which in the Judaism of that era were quite distinct chronologically as well as in their character, where one pertained to Jesus through an action of his earthly father, Joseph, the other pertained to his mother, Mary. The first rite was the rite of presentation and redemption, undertaken by a Jewish father of the firstborn son, and then secondly, the rite of purification of a woman, in this case Mary, after childbirth. That presents an immediate complexity of time, since the rite of presentation was required 30 days after the birth, while the rite of purification fell due 40 days after the birth. At least in the case of a son, it would have been 80 days after the birth in the case of a daughter. Though we may deduce that the presentation could possibly be done after 30 days, without any immediate consequence, in contrast to the rite of purification, which had definite and more immediate impact on the woman. The Jewish background here is that according to the Talmudic tradition, it was the firstborn sons who acted as officiating priests all that way back in time in the wilderness, when the Israelites wandered there for 40 years. And they did that until the construction of the tabernacle, when the then hereditary office was given and restricted to the tribe of Levi, as the book of Numbers tells us. The firstborn held that role in consequence of the deliverance from the tenth plague before the flight from Egypt, when, as you will recall again, the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but spared the firstborn of the Israelites, at which point the commandment was given to them, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it's mine. And that's explained in greater detail in later verses in Exodus, where it said the firstborn of clean beasts were thus made holy and were unredeemable, while the firstborn of unclean beasts and of man had to be redeemed from the priests. This had application, thus not only to children, in one sense, but also to animals, 
owned by a family. The firstborn male of a clean beast had to be brought to the temple as a sacrifice, its blood sprinkled on the altar, its fat burned, and its flesh given to the priests to eat with the other sacrificial meats. And in the case of a son, at least one who was not a Levi, the rule was that the father, not the mother, was obliged to redeem his firstborn son 30 days after the birth. Indeed, such was the gravity of this obligation that if the father failed to redeem the son, the son had to redeem himself when grown up. The sum of money required for that redemption was exactly specified in the Bible, in numbers, as five shekels, to be given in money or in kind to the priest, save that real estate, slaves, or promissory notes, that's to say checks, were not permitted. The priest could afterwards return the money, it's recorded, to the father, although the rabbinical records made clear this practice was not recommended. I think our own treasurer would know the sentiment. In a further point of interest, characteristic of Judaism with its matrilineal emphasis, this law applies to the firstborn of the mother, not of the father. So if a man remarried, he might have to present two firstborn sons. There is next, though, the question of what exactly, or from what, was the son being redeemed, or ransomed, tifteh in Hebrew. And the answer to that is that it was from the service of being a priest, and to have a Levite take his place in the direct service of Yahweh, God. So, if that was one right, what about the right of purification? That, again, was in accord with the law given to Moses which commanded the women of Israel when the days of their purifying had been fulfilled to bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest who shall offer it before the Lord. And if they were unable, by virtue of poverty, to bring a lamb, then the turtle doves or two young pigeons would suffice for the burnt offering and the sin offering where, incidentally, the burnt offering was a holocaust of thanksgiving for the successful delivery of the child and not part of the purification rite itself. Hence, it was in faithful adherence to all of this Mosaic law that Mary, a mother who had given birth to a male child, was considered unclean for seven days, whereupon the circumcision took place, which we commemorated on January the 1st, and in addition to that, she then had to remain three and thirty days before she could enter the temple. Thus Mary duly complied with this Mosaic law and brought her first-born son to the temple and was further purified by the prayer of Simeon, the just, in the presence of Anna, the prophetess. It's thought that this first solemn introduction of Christ into the house of God was from the earliest time celebrated in the church of Jerusalem and that this celebration spread as an annual feature from there. But not only is the history of the feast quite complex, so too are its associations, standing as it does as a hinge for us between Christmas on the one side and Lent through to Easter on the other. The associations of the day are mainly joyful and celebratory, yet there are also darker themes that portend the coming of conflict and suffering. We look back naturally as part of this 
is the infancy narrative still of Christ, we look back to Christmas, and yet forward also towards Lent and the Passion. We recall the joys of Christmas and Epiphany, the joy of the birth of a special child who is God with us, the joy of the angels, the joy of the very curious mix of people, from shepherds all the way through to the wise men from Parthia, all discovering God in Christ at the crib, the light of God's love for the world. A theme of joy which finds its echo today in the delight of Simeon and Anna as they encounter the infant Jesus and again in keeping with the sense of epiphany, they see who this child truly is and was. Yet we do well to remember also that even at Christmas the narrative had its dark side, its shadows, notably that of Herod and his slaughtering of the innocents in his effort to extinguish the light of Christ himself coming into the world, light being the theme of the day. While the Gospel is full of joyful expectation, as two very faithful older people, Simeon and Anna, who have been waiting in this spirit their whole lives, finally see their longed-for Messiah of Israel in this child, Jesus, brought to the temple by his parents. But they do not just see this child. They do not just see that he will spread the light of God to all people throughout the world. They see something darker too. For we must remember the powerful and darker words of Simeon, speaking of coming conflict, when he says this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that is spoken against. The light of God in Jesus will thus not be welcomed everywhere, we learn. God's gift of himself in Jesus is a gift the world will not know how to receive, and Jesus will in fact be opposed. And we of course know where this is heading as we come to this feast, knowing how the earthly life of Jesus ended in his crucifixion, which embodied the cost to God, the cost to Christ, of loving the world such that he gave his only begotten Son, that the world might be saved. Through his final triumph of the cross, his sacrifice and the resurrection. And today's gospel reminds us that the cost was not only one to God and Christ, for Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Words which must have perplexed her as her child grew up, and whose meaning could only become too hideously apparent decades later. And while those words are first addressed to Mary, they are also in a sense addressed to all, who with Mary seek to say to God, let it be unto me according to thy word. If, following Mary, we agree to and seek to share in what God is accomplishing in the world, then there is a sense conveyed here that we too may have to share not only in the joy of following Christ, but also in the cost of participating in what it is for God to so love the world. And that theme is prominent in the collect in which we celebrated the presentation of Jesus in the temple as an act in which he was dedicated to God, while also praying that we too will be enabled 
to present ourselves to God, as indeed we do in every right one Eucharistic prayer, which we'll be hearing in a few moments. Remember those words. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this Holy Communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him that he may dwell in us and we in him. We say that, we hear it often, but how fully do we think about the meaning? On the one hand, we can derive a certain strength from the joy that comes from dedicating ourselves and handing ourselves over, surrendering to God and his loving purposes, which it is well for us to do. But on the other hand, again, we may well need such strength from God in order to share in the cost of making his love known in the world. This serves to call our attention also to the significance of the presence and the response of Simeon and Anna in the Lucan narrative. For this brings yet another strand into what it is we celebrate today, in addition to the presentation and the purification of which we've already spoken. It was this meeting of Simeon with the infant Christ which the early Greek church commemorated with the festival known as the Hippopante. No knowledge exists as to when it was first celebrated but the earliest account is a description that comes down to us of the festivals being celebrated in Jerusalem from an abbess, Aetheria Silvia, who made a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands. And she wrote in her notes, her letter, the 40th day after Epiphany, she writes, is celebrated here in Jerusalem with the very highest honor. For on that day, there is a procession in which all take part and all things are done with the greatest joy, just as at Easter. All the priests, and after them the bishop, preach, always taking for their subject that part of the gospel where Joseph and Mary brought the Lord into the temple on the fortieth day, and Simeon and Anna, the prophetess, saw him, treating of the words which they spoke when they saw the Lord, and of that offering which his parents made. And when everything that is customary has been done in order, the sacrament is celebrated. Then again later, in respect of the West, Tradition has it that an elaboration of a somewhat similar ceremony took place at the close of the 7th century in Rome, when Pope Sergius I is said to have instituted again a procession, how the church does love them, with candles on the feast of the purification. His famous contemporary, the Venerable Bede, an Englishman, refers to the substitution of Mary's procession for the pagan rites of February and describes how the people and priests went through the churches singing hymns and carrying candles. In the ninth century, the custom of blessing these candles for the ensuing year became common, hence the term Candlemas for the Feast of Purification. But it's important to note that the solemn procession represented the entry of Christ, who is the light of the world, into the temple of Jerusalem. And with that in mind, it's fitting to think briefly, as we come towards the end of these reflections, of two completely contrasting perspectives. One's very Western and focused upon Mary, and the other is Eastern and focused upon Simeon. I cannot do them full justice, but for the former Western perspective, we can turn to Dante, who celebrated work 
can perhaps uniquely help us to apprehend something of what Latin piety apprehended and developed about and in the person of Mary, sometimes leading even to such rather extravagant language later as that of co-redemptrix, which is not a declared dogma. Even if that has inclined to seem somewhat extravagant, as I say, from the perspective of more cautious and narrowly philosophical traditions, as one commentator has explained, the Divina Commedia ends as it began, in a series of subtle allusions to the Virgin, which signify that Mary represents the nexus in which humanity is reconciled with God because of her fiat, her consent at the time of the Annunciation, be it unto me according to thy word, remember. That led to the hypostatic union of the human and divine natures in the incarnate word, thus opening the way for the redemption brought through her son, Jesus Christ. Thus was her consent, in a sense, essential in, to the entire economy of salvation. Hence, in a sense, she can be seen, too, to have the impulse which found expression in the view later that Mary herself became the first fruit of the restoration of human nature through the doctrine which some have upheld of her bodily assumption into heaven. For that is something that in a sense offers another thread linking her to Dante, whose signal destiny and self-understanding was to have the experience the other way about, which is to say of heaven in his earthly body. Hence, it is suggested that by means of the fourfold repetition of in te, embedded in thee, embedded in his extraordinary synthesis of God as a Trinitarian circle of knowledge and love, Dante subliminally links the mystery of the Trinity itself to the Virgin via St. Bernard's earlier anaphoric phrase, and I quote, In te misericordia in te pietate, in thee is tenderness, in thee is pity, in te magnificenza di saduna, in thee munificence, in thee united, quantumque in creatura di bontate, whatever in created being is of excellence, in Canto 33. Hence for Dante, just as the Father eternally conceives the Logos, so Mary conceived the Word made flesh, the human face of Christ, that appears in the central circle of the light. In the simile of the geometer who attempts to square the circle, which is mathematically impossible, Dante expresses the utter incapacity of human reason to conceive how God, the uncircumscribed circle, took on human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, a human being. Albeit that ultimately, not, I have to say, unlike Aquinas after his final vision, as the commentators have put it somewhat romantically, in a last humble acknowledgement of his human limitations, Dante folds the wings of reason and is rewarded by a final flash of grace that reveals to him how he, like the whole of creation, may conform to l'amor che muove il sole e l'altre stelle, the famous phrase, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. For Dante, it is Mary who returns both him and all humankind to the heart of the Trinity and thus represents the telos, the end of human nature and history, a concept fundamental to Dante's worldview, which embraces the restoration, the transformation and the glorification 
of God's creation, ultimately. And yet, as I say, ultimately, he, the poet, too, falls silent, leaving us to contemplate the unutterable truth that lies beyond his words. Something captured in the Eastern tradition by the Byzantine song for Simeon, the fourth contagion of St. Romanos, which I will quote only one or two lines. For towards the end of that, it has Simeon say of the light of Christ, wherefore I have dated or dared to hold you fast like a lamp, for any man holding this lamp is lightened, not burned. Therefore shed light upon me, O unextinguishable lamp, you the only friend of man, the light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of his people Israel, the philanthropos God, who came as an eternal lamp unto man, bringing release from death, and to us who believe the gift of everlasting life. Amen.